It's uh, Memorial Day, 29 May in the year of our Lord, 2023. I uh, want to thank you for our Memorial Day special for the audience who's been with us. I think it's our fourth Memorial Day here in uh, War Room. And of course, uh, we've been doing it many years before that at uh, Breitbart, uh, Breitbart News Radio. We used to do over at Sirius XM. And then earlier than that, when I had the show in L.A. at WABC, the Victory Session. So I've been doing this since 2011. I guess it's 12 years now, 13 years. No, 12 years. I don't know. Uh, I want to bring in Patrick K. O'Donnell. For 10 years, I've been doing it for with Patrick K. O'Donnell, the finest combat historian of his day. We're going to get into later in the, in the C block about Memorial Day. We're Washington, D.C., um, the nation's capital, and we're going to take a while and break down exactly about memorials, about uh, tombs of the unknown, how France and other nations of, uh, that have been our allies have commemorated that and how we picked up on it. But the reason uh, today, and we appreciate you, you uh, for your time on, on, on the Saturday show, but I want to get back into it. I want to talk about because I think, um, you know, the nation's kind of gotten off what Memorial Day is about. And we try to reemphasize it here. Memorial Day is not Veterans Day. I'm a veteran. Veterans Day is for thank you for your service. And, you know, the veterans, it's on the, you know, the 11th hour, the 11th uh, day of the, uh, what, the 11th day of the 11th month of the 11th um, hour uh, it, it, with the armistice in France. And in Veterans Day, we commemorate that. Memorial Day is not that. Memorial Day is about the honored dead. It's about those that gave, that were not wounded in combat, as bad as that is. This is for really those who died and gave the ultimate sacrifice. One of the reasons Patrick K. O'Donnell, it would look, he's a dear friend and a colleague, but and we've got to know each other great, you know, over the last 10 years and done a lot together. But the reason you've always resonated with our audience is that you are a combat historian and you don't write these kind of mega... Uh, thematic uh, books about combat. You always take it through the first person. You either do it through interviews you did with the Battle of Fallujah or with uh, with um, World War II or Korea. In fact, you started your whole thing of being a, a historian that would go back and actually do interviews with people as archives. But then even when you went back in those things in the, in the First World War or in the Civil War or in the Revolutionary War, you can't do you would spend years in archives to get the diaries, to get that. So when you read your books, you're really getting the soldier's view of what went on, and it's so powerful. Have we gotten away, you think, as a country? Because you're still a best-selling author. Every book you put out, our audience loves. They're, they're huge bestsellers. Do you think the country's losing the, the understanding of really Memorial Day and that it is set up to, to in remembrance of the honored dead? I think to some degree that's true. I mean, this Memorial Day is about honoring those that have fallen in all of our wars. It's about it's about Sean Stokes, who was in the Battle of Fallujah, or Michael Hanks, who lost his life there, who was only 22 years old in a you know firefight with Chechens in a house that I remember specifically that day like it was yesterday. It was November 17th, 2004. And uh, dragged, I dragged him out of the firefight along with the. We, we, you were embedded. I was. I was a civilian combat historian. I was in uniform though, and uh, fought house to house with Marine Corps in three one, Lima Company, and uh, that was a very powerful experience. But it's it, yeah, that's that's touched me. Those experience, I've been touched by that fire, 
and by those men that have, have died. Did you get that same when you go through the archives and see the first person accounts from like the Revolutionary War or there's World a War there is a sameness to to those to the periods of time. What do you mean by that? In terms of what uh, combat soldiers have gone through and the intensity of the combat. And uh, what you do see is a difference in sometimes the period, but there is a sameness of, of that combat, that closeness and close quarter battle. That's the books that I've written have all been about individuals and people that have, uh, in many cases, changed the course of history through their actions. Small groups of people. Small unit combat. Yeah, that have been in there at the right place at the right time, an inflection point that changed history was through it, their actions. Was it? Was it? Was it inflection points that they created by their agency and their actions? And that's why when you look at it in the grand scope of things, you can see that it was an inflection point. But the reason it was is because of what they did at that moment, that defining moment for them. Yes, exactly. And a, and a classic example is is my book, Dog Company, which is on the Second Ranger Battalion. And this is a small group of men, Dog Company, which is you know roughly a, a little more than 100 men in a company of rangers and they threw pretty much everything they could against these large guns or six main guns at point to hawk they were pointed at the invasion force and they could reach either beach or the ships outside the uh, you know in the channel and they had to be taken out at all costs they they threw um you know massive amounts of of uh naval artillery at the at the guns naval bombardment naval and it was plastered with with um hundreds of sorties of, of bombers the place looked like the crater of a moon but they they did not take out these guns and they relied upon the second ranger battalion uh you know roughly a little more than 200 men to scale 90-foot cliffs under direct machine gun fire. There were IEDs that were suspended from old artillery shells. Hand grenades were being thrown down upon these guys. They threw everything at them. And it and was one... To, and the second rangers had to scale... They had to the, scale... These, these are the boys of Point to Hawk. They these, had to scale a 100-foot cliff? They had to scale a 100-foot cliff under direct fire. This is a you know suicide mission. If there do they was know one. when you do they know they're going to die? Yeah, they know. They were told is, they, this is the last day of their life. They, they understand that. They actually, uh, you know, about ten or twelve days before the invasion, they brought out body bags and they told the men there that they were probably not going to survive. That they were going to have about eighty percent casualties in the unit. How do how do tell me how do men when they're told that? In your research, how do they react? Because this is what Memorial Day is about. Remember, you're going to have uh, the president and other people go and they'll give these speeches this afternoon, um, and they'll be at Arlington. But when you look at the peace that's there, you look at the calm that's there, it's, it's magnificent in its simple beauty. And you've, just like at Normandy, you go to that, you go to that cemetery at Normandy above Omaha Beach. It is so magnificent in its simplicity and its power of this grace. But... You have to put your mind to the thing that this came at a carnage that's almost unbelievable and that most of the men that are dead there knew they were going to die. They knew that this was their last day on Earth. And some even had premonitions to that effect. And they still went anyways. And that's what's sort of that's what's so extraordinary about it. And several of the men, even in dog company, even had competitions on who would be the first up the up the cliff. They could not they were they were determined. To, to fulfill their mission. And uh, they scaled that cliff against all odds, and they got up there, 
and the guns were removed from the casements. But this is where the... The uh, Germans knew... Why did the Germans remove the guns? Because they, they, if they were in the casements, they were completely an easy target because they, they could be seen and spotted by aerial observation. So what they did is they moved the guns about 800 yards inland into an apple orchard and put nets over them, and they were ready to go. Uh, to be moved back up, and yeah, they were no to stay where they were at. They right. could be fired from the, in place, and what oh from the Appalachian, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And what happened is Len Lamel. This is what is so Amer- amazing about Amer- the American combat soldier. He wasn't. He didn't wait for orders to be told what to do. On his Init- own initiative, 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 on his own initiative, fulfills the mission. He finds tire tracks and follows those tracks, and he has to go through. A labyrinth on top, which is a series of bunkers that are heavily defended by the Germans with machine guns and hand grenades and everything else. They make, they fight their way through there. They follow the fire track, the tire tracks, and they find the apple orchard. And these men are uh, equipped with what's known as a thermite grenade. And the thermite grenade is, it creates a um, molten metal at a very high temperature. And they put the grenades on the gears of the guns. And Len disabled five of them alone. But he changed the course of history through his actions. That's yes. his agency. agency. Yes, that's the key right and there. And wasn't told to do it. This is the nobody was told to do it, and he was wounded at the same time. He was shot on the way up on the top of the cliff by a machine gun bullet in his side, and he fought through all that without you know. When you're at Point to Hawk, Point to Hawk is a point at the very south of the beaches, and you look up, you've got Omaha, you got Utah. Um, but the, the, it's so strategic and so high. Um, how did, and I, having been up there, I actually filmed up there, the craters are still there. It's they like, are. It's, you feel like you're on the moon. I mean, the, being a naval officer and knowing what a naval bombardment, at least the sending side, it's almost incomprehensible of the intensity of what caused that, that in the aerial bombing. How did they train, how did they train to scale in all that with everything going on? To keep your concentration to get up a hundred foot high cliff what, under fire. What they did is for six months they trained in England on the the, the, the biggest cliffs that they could find. At Dover or it, it, Dover everywhere else. And they did this without safety harnesses or anything. They just used ropes. And to make it addedly added realism, they um, the officers in the group would fire their um, M1 Garands directly at the men. So they would obviously miss, but they would feel that that sensation of live bullets as they went up. Incredible. Tell me about who had a premonition. There was one man that was um, really a striking uh, story. He uh, he, there were a number of men that the 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 medical officer knew he was going to die, for instance. And uh, he felt he he wrote it about it. And then in the next day (coughs) he was dead. And and this was this was this was actually that story was actually at a place called Hill Four Hundred, and the Rangers would always tell me, uh, Pat, our toughest day was not Point to Hawk. It was at a place called Hill Four Hundred, and Hill Four Hundred was in the Hurricane Forest, and it was the highest hill in the forest. And this is an epic story. It really should be a movie. They used a bayonet charge to go across an open field, and they assaulted Hill Four Hundred. With this, uh, with several ranger companies, people don't know uh, Hurtgen Forest. If you look at the statistics, we talked about this on the Saturday show about the bloodiest engagements in uh, 
in in his in American combat history, Hurricane Forrest always ranks like four or five. I mean, it's it's kind of totally unknown, right? But it it is it is one of the most intense forms of combat, and that's what we honor today. What do you honor on Memorial Day? Is the intense combat of those who knew they were sacrificing everything, right? That's why they're the honored dead. Absolutely, they they, they, they willingly did this in defense of their country. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Steve. Hill, Hurricane Forest, Hill 400, Dog Company, the 2nd Ranger Battalion. This is a months-long, five, six-month-long battle, even longer. And the casualties there rivaled those of the Korean War. That's how, in, that's how many. In the total were. Korean War, yes. all three years of it. Yes. In the it was Forest. a massive, massive slaughter fest of slaughter factory that just... Um, the, the Germans had everything zeroed in for their artillery and their mortars. There were bunkers that were hidden and camouflaged in every, pretty much every, every crossroads, every nook and cranny of the forest, heavily mined. It was just practically impenetrable. And instead of bypassing the forest, they were concerned that the forest would be used to um, you know, sally out forces to attack the U.S. forces as we went into Germany. Instead of you know, surrounding it and bypassing it, we decided to take it piece by piece. And it was a, um, you know, a disaster. Okay, we're going to take a short commercial break. Patrick K. O'Donnell is here. We're going to get into um, uh, this show. We're going to break down the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. We're going to break down uh, Arlington National Cemetery, Memorial Day, all of it. It's our Memorial Day special. I want to thank Patrick uh, for doing this. and Honored also to be here. For Steve. being with us on Saturday. We're in the I don't know, ninth or tenth year of doing this uh, together in both radio, uh, podcast, television, streaming, all of it. So short commercial break. We're going to be back in the war room in just a moment. President Trump recently issued a warning from his home at Mar-a-Lago. And I want to quote this. Our currency is crashing and will soon no longer be the world standard, which will be the greatest defeat, frankly, in 200 years. End quote. He did that in the interview that I had with him a couple weeks ago at his home. Now, there are three reasons the central banks are dumping the U.S. dollar. Inflation, deficit spending, in our insurmountable national debt. The fact is there's one asset that has withstood famine, wars, and political and economic upheaval dating back to biblical times. That would be gold. Gold has been a hedge against chaos from time immemorial. And you can own it in a tax-sheltered retirement account with the help of Birch Gold. That's right. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k maybe from a previous employer, into an IRA in gold. And the best part, you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Let me repeat that. You don't pay a penny out of pocket. Just text Bannon to 989898 for your free info kit. They'll hold your hand through the entire process. Let me repeat that. Birch Gold professionals will hold your hand through this entire process. Now think about this. When currencies fail, gold is a safe haven. It always has been. How much more time does the dollar actually have? Protect your savings with gold like I did. 
Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of happy customers. Text Bannon to 989898. Get your free info kit on gold. Text again, Bannon, to 989898. Remember, the best part is you don't pay a penny out of pocket to get this information and start the process. Do it today. Take action. Okay, welcome back. Uh, it's our Memorial Day special. I'm here with uh, Patrick K. O'Donnell. No one has, um, there's no combat historian that has covered from a first-person perspective of going through journals, di- uh, diaries, interviews, um, oral histories, which you started as a specialist, that has gone from the Revolutionary War, and your two books on the Revolution have been magnificent, all the way to uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and your book on Fallujah is still the best first-person account of Fallujah. Thank you. What have you What have you learned in that? Tell me. Tell me what What are the the meta What's the meta narrative of your dedication of your life, not to American soldiers or American uh, sailors, but to really those at the t- every one of your stories? You're at the tip of the tip of the spear. In each situation, whether it's in the Revolution, whether it's in World War One, Korea, Chosin Reservoir, I mean, you're, you're at Point de Hoc, Hurricane Forest. You always go in. What What is the big takeaway that you have taken from that? The books that I've written are largely on specialized units, elite units, special operations forces, but also average Americans that do extraordinary things. Well, aren't they That's, all average Americans when yeah, they go into that? they're all volunteers right. at one point or another and just average Americans. But I think that's the takeaway that a, a person through their agency can change the course of history. It, it doesn't matter. Ordinary men doing extraordinary things. And women in some cases yes. with the OSS too. Yes. Ordinary yes. men and women doing extraordinary things. Absolutely. Now, what what is it something about... Uh, America as a country is it something about the values we've taught that from the revolution all the way to Fallujah, you see that time and time and time again on foreign battlefields. I mean, right now in Ukraine, it, they're fighting over their own territory, right? But you're doing it on foreign battlefields uh, most of the time. Yeah, for 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 America, it's it's about an idea, and the American idea is a powerful idea. Ideas are more powerful than anything else in the world. In uh, the American idea of of liberty and freedom resonated so much with the American Revolution that it changed the world. It changed the world many, many times over through through revolutions and everything else. And the first two books that I've written have been about that liberty and freedom and that idea that these men and women um, put down and then changed the world. Through it, it's the operating system that we have as Americans, and right now it's it's under attack in so many ways. What do you mean by that? For you to say that means something important. It means that in so many places, the um, the ideas of what we believe are freedom and liberty are being changed, and uh, it's it's a uh, it's it's happening in in so many places in so many levels. And that's why yeah. I believe that our founding will be our salvation. 
What do you mean by that? It means that the way that we originated, the our understanding of, of, of freedom and liberty will be our salvation in the end. Because there's so many, in many ways, it's also about power and control. And the founders understood that and how to diffuse it. And with their, with the, with their, uh, with the constitution and other things. And that's why we have to constantly, I think, go back to that founding era, which I've interviewed uh, over 4,000 Americans in World War II. And many of them. You've done would, oral histories. Of oral histories. They were 4, my closest friends in the 82nd Airborne Division, the 517 Independent Parachute Regiment. I mean, the 1st Special Service Force, the OSS, you name it, Merrill's Marauders. But they would come back and say to me, I, I would sometimes say, are you the greatest generation? No, Pat. The greatest generation was our founding generation because of what they faced. They faced the greatest army in the world at the time. And they also faced fellow Americans in our first civil war. And it became, that was the, I think the toughest test. And they developed these ideas of freedom and liberty, which changed the world. And they are just as important today as they were then. Did that run through the bloodstream of, uh, of the, uh, the troops you fought with, you were assigned to yes. in Fallujah? Yes. In the 21st century? I felt that that was, a, as I said, that was our next great generation. I mean, they were, I think every generation in many ways, the World War One generation, the Korean War generation, World War II, Spanish-American War, Civil War generation, these the men and women that I met in uh, Iraq, in Fallujah, were exceptional. And, um, and I saw Marines that were wounded and couldn't, would bail out of the aid station just to get back to fight with the platoon. Because of that, when you do these small units, and yes, they're trained as elite troops, so they all start as normal Americans. They're trained. Is it the camaraderie of the unit? Is it the cohesion of the small unit? Is that what drives? Is that what? Yes, what they people? were fighting for each other. The man on their left and right. They were um, the men in uh, first platoon, for instance, were best friends, and. Um, that was a most remarkable experience to be um, be there uh, in combat with them and see it. And then I've also seen uh, it from go full circle. I um, when I came home from Iraq, I, um, I I'll never forget. I was it was here in Washington D.C. and um, the families of the fallen. We had five or six in the platoon, which was an enormous number. And in the squad alone, there were four. And in the squad, those four family members asked me to come to Washington, D.C. and meet them. And they wanted to know what I was doing and how I was going to tell the story of first platoon. And uh, it was a, uh, at first, my, the first, one of the individuals, father fought in Vietnam, and um, he accused another man of, of uh, killing his son, and that wasn't the case because it was friendly this, fire. No, it wasn't the case at all. It was just the case that oh my God, we had so much. I mean, so much coming at us at Fallujah. It was house to house. Oh, it was some of that. It was some already bitterness. It was yeah. The there was because it, we had four killed in the squad, and um, it was just a situation of how intense that fire was and how 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 in the. 
in the end of this, the whole thing, I mean, I'll never forget. I was in tears and they were too. And he came up and he said, uh, tell my son's story. And it was one of the most powerful moments I think I've ever had. Because at first he did not want the story told. Yeah. He thought he'd been killed by friendly fire. Yeah. Well, it was just a sort of, it wasn't a friendly fire thing. It was just a situation of just the intensity of it that didn't quite understand it. And, uh, it's, but now, is it hard for the parents to understand? I think it is. Of course, nobody ever, is. nobody ever uh, goes goes through that and ever gets well, you over. You prepared. You went over as a combat historian. You had spent your life at that time writing books and doing oral interviews and and reading archives and, and diaries. Did it prepare you for actually being assigned to a? a, a, a yeah, squad? I was. I was actually prepared by the the World War II men that I. Um, that I interviewed. I'll never forget. Um, I One of them said to me, um, you know when a bullet whizzes and snaps and the difference? And I felt that firsthand. I, I never, I'll never forget. I was in a ditch and direct sniper fire was almost, was right at my ear and one went right in front of my face. It was, uh, it was intense. And I'll, I had this flashback of hit my conversation with that World War II vet. Patrick K. O'Donnell, why don't you give, I want to make sure everybody goes to your website and, 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 and to the degree they want to enjoys uh, your writings because pretty, in the span of the yeah, books. The one they were talking about is we were one. It's, it's also on the Commandant's reading list. It was recommended. Of the Marine Corps. Of the Marine Corps. It was required reading for, for NCOs of what, what life is like. Non-commissioned officers, the backbone of the Marine Corps. Was exactly. The, the required reading for non-commissioned officers. For many, many years. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're going to pivot here when we come back. Uh, we can't do it any better than we did it. It was Pat, as you're going to see Patrick K. O'Donnell and myself. We go through really what Memorial Day is and uh, what it, not just what it means to America, but the structure of Memorial Day, the Tomb of the Unknown, um, the uh, the honored guard over at uh, Arlington, uh, the Army that uh, that uh, stays in, in eternal vigilance. Uh, it, Arlington National Cemetery, I would say, is the most sacred ground in this country, you would say, no doubt? There's no doubt about it. Arlington National Cemetery, the former home of General Robert E. Lee, of course, that was changed during the Civil War. We're going to walk you through all the way from the battlefields of France. And I don't think American people quite appreciate the carnage of the First World War and how uh, the United States Army came in at the end and really tipped the scales and the reason the First World War ended uh, really, the bloodiest battle, I think, in American history is from August, the Battle of the Argonne, far of Meuse-Argonne. Meuse-Argonne is the, the Meuse, largest battle in American history. The largest battle in American history goes from basically the middle of August all the way to the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, right up to Armistice. In fact, people were dying right up to that. Uh, and that is from, from that, we got the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and really uh, this very special uh, observation over at Arlington National Cemetery. So we're going to take a uh, break. We'll come back. We'll go through all of that. I want to thank you. We're here at our Memorial Day special, May of 2023. Uh, we'll be back in the warm in just a moment.
In my younger days, I was a naval officer on a destroyer. In fact, I was the A-gang officer in charge of all the engineering systems that were not main propulsion. And one of those was air purification. And I can tell you, the standards of the United States Navy are second to none. If all home air purifiers are the same, why did the U.S. Department of Defense select EnviroCleanse to protect and purify the air on board our Navy ships? Because of EnviroCleanse, advanced mineral technology goes beyond ordinary HEPA filters to destroy airborne illness causing cold and flu viruses, including COVID. EnviroCleanse is the new science in air purification, and now you can order one for your home. This is how you help stop colds and flus from taking your whole family down. This is how you destroy allergy and flaming toxins and mold from the air your family breathes. In fact, this hospital-grade technology is so powerful that it promises far fewer colds and allergies and better sleep. Visit ekpure.com. That's ekpure.com and use the code STEVE for 10% off your EnviroCleanse home purification unit. You also receive a free air quality monitor, plus fast, free shipping. That's $150 savings right there. That's ekpure.com, code Steve. ekpure.com, code Steve. special. So Patrick K. O'Donnell, the tra- trauma of World War One, all these casualties in a, in a manner with this highly mechanized warfare, uh, gas, uh, you know, the, the perf- perfection of the machine gun, um, really combined arms for the first time, heavily entrenched, um, shocked America. Let's talk about what happened afterwards in, the, in trying to even get the war dead back in this whole concept of uh, of um, of the of, of of the unknown soldier, that even how it started, you know, in France and in the United Kingdom, and, and of course General Pershing. This this, you know, you've had what Washington, Jackson, but that wasn't even a formal army, you know, um, Grant, and, uh, and 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 Pershing. I guess General Marshall, though he wasn't a field commander, uh, Pershing considered probably in the top. General Lee, probably in the top two or three generals overhead, but but a shadow, a, a guy that just really dominated the entire army when he was there. Absolutely. He was an incredible uh, commander, a dominant force, and also somebody that could deal with an, uh, an alliance, which is something up until that point we haven't had, we had not had until, except for General Washington. It's an incredible uh, skill to have, to be able to, to work that and that finesse and also to follow Wilson's orders, which would be to keep the American Expeditionary Force separate and fighting on its own so that we would not lose our identity as Americans. And also the, the role of, of America would not be uh, downplayed in the peace negotiations. Had we just put our troops in with the French or the British, they would have been cannon fodder. Instead, we had a separate army that would be a de- decisive, play a decisive role in, in World War I. But going back to the issue of all of these Americans that were buried there, initially, they did not want to bring back those those American uh, boys that we had lost. 
and it was a cost issue um, to, to, to basically disinturn all of the bodies and then carefully bring them back in an honorable manner. It was an enormous expense. And eventually, Congress authorized it. The, the removal of anybody that wanted their, their family members returned home. And then there was the issue of the, the three, over 3,000 Americans that were still unknown and unaccounted for. And initially, the War Department claimed that they could identify those Americans, and that was a pipe dream. And there was also this under. And this was this was at the very beginning of even DNA or any of that kind of testing. Correct. And, and they, but they they felt that they had the, uh, the the scientific expertise and medical expertise to actually identify everybody. That was a going in bid, correct? I think that was it. That was this, this surface argument. But I think in in reality. There was also cost that was associated with this that they didn't want to necessarily bear. And um, what happens is an, an interesting movement, a, a, a grassroots movement springs up. And our boys are brought home. That's the first step. And then a movement by a woman editor, um, the delineator. She she's a paper in New York City. She's very powerful. and. She started to to write that we need a tomb of the unknown like France and Great Britain. And this caught, you know, a lot of attention around the country. And it was spearheaded in Congress by Congressman Hamilton Fish from New York. And he had an extraordinary service record. He was with the Harlem Hellfighters as a white officer that fought with a black unit. And they were one of the most, they had some of the longest service in France. These men were in France for over 190 days in combat and, uh, you know, highly distinguished in many cases, but they had to fight against racism. Um, and they fought a lot of times with the French army. And there's some incredible stories of, of uh, World War One heroes, Medal of Honor recipients that I, I document in The Unknowns in that book. But Fish sees this Tomb of the Unknown as an opportunity to recognize his men who had not gotten, had, had sort of the short end of the stick in many cases, but also to recognize all Americans that had fought in World War I. And, the, and it gains a tremendous amount of ground. And uh, there's bipartisan support. And it moves forward in 1921. Hang on a second. Just one. Who, who is the, the female editor? Became she was a firebrand. I mean, she really. Her took name this, is Marie Maloney. She's paper. sort of lost to history, but she's got an enormous story. Um, as she's she runs a newspaper called a magazine called the Delineator, and she um, is a New Yorker. Her husband is a a, a, a publisher as well. So she has quite a bit of clout, and she uses it for good to um, to really foster this this grassroots movement for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And uh, in 1921, what what happens then? Actually, they get legislation passed. They get legislation passed to, to fund the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and then the process begins and it's um october of 1921 
and the Braves Registration Service with the U.S. Army is goes to France, and they they go to several of the major cemeteries in France, which also correspond with the great battles that America, the American Expeditionary Force fought in. They go to um, the Meuse-Argonne, which I mentioned earlier is the largest battle in American history, and also one of the bloodiest. They go to Bella Wood, the cemetery outside of that. They go to San Mahel, and um, they take four um, individuals that they <clears throat> they know are not they're not identifiable. They have no dog tags. They have no um, identity discs. They have no papers that identify them as soldiers. They go through the bodies very carefully to make sure that there's no identifying features that can identify these individuals. And then they bring these bodies back to France. They, they drive to Chalon, France, and they place the bodies in state and kept uh, flag draped coffins in the city hall at Chalons. And then that is that the night that night before is when the tomb of the unknown is selected. And this is the this is the um, the final portion of my book, The Unknowns. It, it deals with not only the ceremony, but the man who selected it, but also the body bearers that actually brought him home which are Pershing's most decorated heroes of the war. And each one of those individuals was assigned to, to, um, to come up with, to tell a story of the American Expeditionary Force. So um, walk us through the walk us through the, the the selection process when they got to the to the to the I think it was in a town hall and and they kind of changed it up of what they thought they were going to do how they selected it and then how they passed that to actually this guard of honor which the the body bearers are really a guard of honor of the of the toughest of the tough the bravest of the brave in Pershing's army. Absolutely, and they were hand selected by General Pershing himself. But the night that the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier was selected for America is really an interesting story in and of itself. There was a general officer that was selected to to choose our unknown. And it was the French that interceded and said that you need to use an enlisted man because they had done the, the fighting, the bulk of the fighting to select the unknown soldier. And um, it was here that the younger Edward Younger Edward, is selected. Um, he's one of the men that still remained in Europe at the time. And he had some of the most distinguished combat experience of all the men that were there in Shalom at that time. And he was just a doughboy. And, but it was perfect. It was quintessential in the sense that he'd been through all the major battles with the second division which saw the toughest of the tough, Steve. They were at, near Bella Wood. They had fought at the great counteroffensive later. They were at Meuse um, Argonne. They were at some of the, the most difficult and bitter battles of the war. And he was combat wounded uh, multiple times and uh, really kind of a perfect choice in many ways. And it was it was stunning for him to, to receive the honor. He was he was very much uh, taken back. He didn't expect it. 
And um, I found his original handwritten notes at, at the National Archives. And he, he takes us back in time to that moment in France that morning where he's given a bouquet of white roses and told to select the unknown. And he walks into the room and there's a dirge of music in the background. And he carefully moves through the various flag draped coffins. And he says in his handwritten notes that his hand literally moved as he placed the flowers on the casket. After he had prayed, he had felt that that was a man that he had served in combat that had died, that he knew, and uh, placed the flowers on that unknown. And that is our unknown soldier. And it's brought back, it's quite an extraordinary story that the caisson uh, goes through the streets of Shalom, moves by rail to Lahar, where the, the casket is placed on the great um, cruiser, the Olympia. This is Admiral Dewey's flagship during the Spanish-American War. And the, the cruiser, the, the casket itself is so large that they have a hard time bringing it below decks. So as an honor, um, and also for the fact that they can't bring it below decks, they, they keep it up on deck, uh, flag draped. And the, uh, the cruiser goes across, you know, makes it a voyage across the Atlantic. And it's not smooth sailing. They hit a, a massive storm. And the Marine guards on board the Olympia literally lashed themselves with ropes to the casket to prevent it from going overboard during these massive storms and gales. But the, the, um, the Olympia makes it to Washington Navy Yard. The remains of the dock are still there on the 9th of November, 1921. And the casket is brought off the ship and it's the, the body bearers that are the, 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 the portion of the unknowns, the book that I wrote, that is the heart of the story. And these men are given the honor of, of bringing the, the casket and the remains first to the capital where it lays, it lies in state and then to Arlington. But they're, they're symbolic in the sense that these are all enlisted men that are chosen, they're handpicked by General Pershing because they had seen the toughest of the tough. Most, many have the Medal of Honor or the Distinguished Service Cross, Navy Cross, and their stories are inner service. It's not just the Army, it's the Marine Corps, and it's the U.S. Navy, and it's different specializations within each. It's the the heavy artillery, for instance, which is known as the coastal I, artillery, I, I, the big guns, the I, rail guns. I, 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 I tell you, uh, hangover section, Patrick. Infantry. Captain Ben, Patrick, Patrick K. O'Donnell is also going to uh, join us on the other side of the break. Right now, many Americans are feel, feeling powerless. You know the feeling. The economy isn't stable, crime continues to plague our communities, and those in charge do not seem to care. There's something empowering about knowing that you have the skills to defend yourself, and that's why I endorse iTarget Pro. This revolutionary system allows you to drive fire practice, 
with your actual far, firearm at any time in the safety and privacy of your own home. No more inconvenient trips to the range and you will save a ton of money on practice ammo. Just download iTarget's proprietary app, load the laser bullet into your firearm and start your training experience. Improve muscle memory, increase reaction speed, sight alignment, trigger control, and much more. iTarget comes in all the major calibers, including 223, so you can stay sharp with almost any firearm. Save 10% plus, get free shipping with the offer code Bannon when you go to itargetpro.com right now. Don't rely on the government to make you feel safe. Empower yourself with itargetpro. That's the letter I, targetpro.com. itargetpro.com and the offer code is Bannon. What defines the American spirit? Preserving life, liberty, and pursuing happiness. Caring for the nation we call home and its people. As patriots, it's our duty to drive the entrepreneurial spirit, pushing hard, reaching for success, sharing patriotism, because the American way of life is for all to live. The Flag Shirt, where freedom reigns. Okay, welcome back. We are talking about the Arlington National Cemetery. The, the service today will be around the Tomb of the Unknown, which is very simply has uh, known but to God. Uh, Captain Bannon, give us the overview of uh, the number of cemeteries here for, uh, for our fallen and for veterans in the United States, and then how many of the American Battlefield Commission, how many in, uh, throughout the rest of the world? The Department of Veterans Affairs National Cemetery Administration maintains 155 national cemeteries in 42 states and Puerto Rico, as well as 34 soldiers' lots and monument sites. And then as of today, there are 26 cemeteries and 32 memorials, monuments, and markers under the care of the American Battle Monument Commission. And there are more than 140,000 U.S. service men and women women interred at the cemeteries and more than 94,000 MIA or lost or buried at sea. Well, the 94,000 includes, I think it's 40,000 of the eighth, uh, the famous eighth air force over, uh, over the Nazi Germany and uh, Europe didn't re never recovered the airmen, just incredible sacrifice. Uh, I want to also say, because we're not going to get to all of the different books he writes. And every time we come on, we try to feature a couple of them. The, uh, we're really doing the unknowns today, and hopefully we'll get to maybe one or two others in, in the in the second hour. But here's the reason Patrick K. O'Donnell, I think, is 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 separates himself out, and reason these books have gotten such a, 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 a I don't want to call it a cult following, but such a strong following. It's the level of research you, you see here on this about the unknowns. Patrick goes to the, the archives. It's all archival work or interviews. He's done he's done thousands of interviews with with actual before like the greatest generation passed away. And it, it takes, Patrick, what is it? An average of four, you've got a couple of books working every one time, but it's essentially four or five years from the idea, the gestation of that, your research and actual the writing, it takes you about four or five years to complete a book. That's right, Steve. Uh, all the books that I've written 
have found me in one way or another. Either I'm walking down a road and I find an old rusted sign, or I, you know, I'm talking to somebody and the the idea comes to me, and then it's from there. These are all hand done books. I do all the research. I do all the writing. Everything. I walk the battlefields. I I spend years in the archives to find the primary sources. Or as you said, with I've written seven books on World War II. I've interviewed over four thousand World War II veterans from the elite units: the 82nd Airborne, 101st Rangers, Paramarines, OSS. Um, this is my 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 passion and specialty. I'm, I'm I've been trying to you know preserve and share American history since I graduated from college in 1992. Hold it. So for oral history, so I just want people to understand this. So 92, what 30, 40 years you've been doing this, um, and you have 4,000 interviews. And you've got the notes and the recordings of those. You, you essentially have an oral history of some of these elite units, do you not? I do. I probably have the largest uh, archive in the world. And it's it's not only it's video, it's um, it's audio, and it's also electronic. I kind of, at the beginning of the Internet, I created um, the Drop Zone Virtual Museum, which was an or- the first oral history project for World War II. This is back in mid to early 90s and i was i created a community of world war ii veterans so i was gathering their e-histories as i call them their their um their histories through email and uh yeah we i was capturing the elite airborne units the 11th airborne 503 parachute infantry regiment um just these were my friends i i i it's my daughter grew up having like all these uncles from World War II, and it's it's an amazing thing to have the legends of D-Day go to your birthday parties and things, and have you know people that were true American heroes that you can call a friend, and uh, that really changed the world, and uh, you know at the same time just regular people. That that, did that's what I wanted to. These are just regular, ordinary Americans in, in everyday life, correct? With the, the most extraordinary fighting men, maybe in the world history, as far as their sacrifice for others. But just, just if you met them, they were just they were they were your next door neighbor, correct? That's right, and and that's what um, one of the things that I've always wanted to do with the books that I've written is to sort of inspire other people to look into your own family to to capture the stories of the individuals in your family, to capture your personal history and, and record it. And it's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible piece of American history. It's often largely unknown or forgotten. Okay, I tell you what, we're gonna take, we're gonna take a break here to start the second hour. We're gonna continue with Patrick K. O'Donnell. We're gonna put up, uh, Patrick, what's the site they go to your personal site to get to all your all your uh, writings. And I tell, you know, P- Patrick was embedded uh, during the Iraq War, wrote an amazing book about Fallujah. Uh, I think the best eyewitness account of, of the Battle of Fallujah, which is one of the toughest battles in Marine Corps history, as the Marines will tell you. Um, 
and it's uh, extraordinary. The, uh, Patrick, there's not one book you can't pick up of his that you won't be mesmerized, and you're going to want to read them all. That's the thing. And now he's gone through all the way from the revolution all the way up to the uh, Iraq conflict. And it's just, you know. The book you mentioned about Fallujah is called We Were One. And that is a, is a book that's on the Commandant's reading list. It's required reading. And that is a, the platoon that I was in, um, embedded in Fallujah. I fought with those Marines uh, house to house, pulled out a Marine that was in a firefight with Chechens. They almost killed me. <laughs> it was a, um, it's one thing to write about military history. It's another to experience it. And that's Patrick, hang on. Writing. Hang on one second. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back with combat historian Patrick O'Donnell. Folks, let me tell you about Salty. It's a company that makes a soft gel supplement rich in antioxidants to help people like you and me keep a healthy heart. While COVID gets all the headlines, it's important to realize that heart disease kills nearly 700,000 Americans every year. Yes, heart disease is the number one killer every year, year in and year out. Heart disease builds over time. Hypertension, high blood pressure, bad cholesterol, diabetes, all of it affects our heart. A healthy heart is key to being energetic as we get older. It is never too early to take care of your heart. You see, heart disease sneaks up on us. You can start in your 30s, and when this happens, you're at serious risk by the time you turn 60. If you want to take care of your heart and those you care about, please go to warroomhealth.com. That's warroomhealth.com. All one word, warroomhealth.com. Use the code warroom at checkout to save 67% of your first shipment. That's code WARROOM at checkout to save 67%. Do it again. WARROOM HEALTH, all one word, WARROOMHEALTH.COM. Go there today. You need, if you're going to be part of the posse, you need a strong heart. You need a lion's heart. How we're going to do that is with Salty. Go there. Do it today. Check it out. 